This is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. You're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 8 a.m. on Thursdays. Each week, we will interview a history professional with the theme of bridging the past and present. Let's get started. I am in a conventional dither with a conventional star in my eye. And you will know there's a lump in my throat when I speak of that wonderful guy. Good morning and welcome to It's All History to Me. This morning we are joined by Mr. Charlie Rodhammer, who is the manager and director of the Sequoia Birthplace Museum in Monroe, Tennessee, which is adjacent to the koala boundary that belongs to the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Nation. Since 1986, the Sequoia Birthplace Museum has served as a primary historical resource on the legacy of Sequoia, ensuring that the story of this Cherokee leader has a place to be recognized and highlighted near the land he once walked. The Sequoia Museum tells the story of the Cherokees and their impact on the evolution of our country. The museum features carefully preserved artifacts that provide an authentic up-close look at life from another time as a product of Cherokee heritage. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Charlie. Yes, ma'am. All right. So let's begin our conversation. Uh, Could you share with our listeners a little bit more about the experiences in your life that led you to this role that you currently hold at the Sequoia Birthplace Museum? It's kind of been uh, um, my whole life. I've just uh, been a history nerd, um, interested in uh, uh, military history, uh, uh, floating, and... uh, um, I'm sorry, there's, like, music coming through. Is that... Oh, uh, let's see if we can fix that. Do you hear it now? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Let's see. Um... <laughs> <laughs> sorry for all the technical difficulties this morning. There we go. Okay, perfect. Okay, sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> um... But I just, I've always been interested in history, and uh, as I went through school, I mean, it was kind of everybody said I needed to be a history teacher, and um, when I was in high school, I got involved in uh, Civil War reenacting in an artillery unit, and um, I actually went in the real army and uh, served in the 82nd Airborne in artillery, and um, when I went to college, uh, I actually wanted to learn to blacksmith, and I met the blacksmith um that was working there near there, David Bruin, and he actually was the exhibit specialist for the Mountain Heritage Center uh, at Western Carolina University. And so as I was working with him as blacksmithing as an apprentice, um, he would get me to come in and help uh, build exhibits or uh, move artifacts, uh, help the registrar with a, a collection. And so as I was, my degrees were in criminal justice, but by the time I finished, um, I had all this practical experience um, working in the museums and doing uh, living history and interpretive uh, work. So I've always gotten history jobs ever since. Wow, that's such a such a cool path to your current position, and definitely a testament to the uh, luckiness of life, or just that you know you keep pursuing opportunities and you'll find your way. Well, and the one thing that you know, and advice. Volunteer. Um, you know, uh, I'm not familiar. Do, does Auburn have a, a historical museum? or We don't have a historical museum. I think we have a natural history museum and an art museum. Okay. Well, both. I mean, I've, I've volunteered at art museums, and it's not really my interest, but I've helped friends. Uh, and, you know, that's the thing. If you want to get out there and get a job, I mean, you get the, you know, get the education, get the education. But when a director's looking at your resumes, you can have a 4.0, but no practical experience. And somebody with a, a C, you know, average, but they've been volunteering at local museums, at uh, historical sites. Um, you know, it shows that they, that they get out there, that they love, they have a passion for the for for history for the museums. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's great advice. Yeah. For our next question, how did the Sequoia Birthplace Museum come about? Well, it goes back um, before World War II. Uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority wanted to um, had plans to build the Teleco Lake, 
And, of course, the war broke out, and so TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, put everything on hold. And so uh, after the war in the 19, late 1940s and the early 50s, they dug those plans out and started working on it. Well, when it became public, um, the locals here that were going to be impacted by the lake taking their land, they were certainly against it. Mm-hmm. And um, the eastern band of the Cherokee Indians and the Cherokee Nation out in Oklahoma uh, were against it because it was going to cover up uh, town sites, mm-hmm. sacred sites, uh sites where the Cherokee were still coming to get medicine and um, graves. uh, And so they were fighting to try to stop it. Um, And in the early 1960s, uh, we had, there were new laws that came about, um, preservation, historic preservation laws that if you're going to build something like the lake, you needed to do a historical uh, survey. And the University of Tennessee Anthropology Department came in uh, and started doing archaeological digs uh, to try try to find out who was here, how long were they here, you know, about the different cultures over the time. Hmm. And they thought they were only going to be here like a couple of years, maybe. Um, <laughs> but then in the mid-60s, um, there was environmental laws that came into play. Hmm. And one of those laws is you could not cause a species to go extinct. Yeah. And... Um, one of the environmentalists found a little fish called the snail darter. Uh-huh. And it's like, it's only in the little Tennessee. If you build this dam, it's going to cause the snail darter to go extinct. Um, the case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, you can't build the dam, you can't build the lake, uh, because you caused the snail darter to go extinct. Oh, wow. Well, President Jimmy Carter uh, signed a bill into law that said, basically, You'll forget all federal laws. You'll finish the dam, close the floodgates, and be done with this project. Wow. And so when that happened, I'm sorry. So when that happened, um, the the Eastern Band saw there's no stopping it. And, of course, the local folks, you know, they couldn't stop it. But it had given the University of Tennessee years to do archaeological digs. They were actually still doing digs as the water ran into the trenches. Um to try to recover as much information about the, the peoples that had lived here. And um, so the the Cherokee, the Cherokee Nation and the Eastern Band uh, kind of said, went to TV and said, how are you going to help commemorate and remember the people, the Cherokee that lived here? And so TVA actually created, uh, hired an outside company that came up with about 38 different concepts. The first two were to return the remains of the Cherokee that could be identified as 18th century Cherokee. And there was 192 uh, remains that were returned back to the Eastern Band, and they were re, uh, reinterred, reburied um, back in 1986, shortly after the Sequoia Birthplace Museum uh, opened. And one of those other concepts was to build a museum to tell Sequoia's story. Um, and so uh, the Cherokee Nation kind of backed off and said, you know, to the Eastern Band, uh, this is in your back door. You know, we'll let you kind of, you know, take care of all of this. And so that's how uh, we're owned and operated by the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Indian. Wow. That's such a such a fascinating story with so many different <laughs> different actors and players to get the museum into existence. Nothing is simple here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So another question, what is the overarching goal of the Sequoia Birthplace Museum, and how does the museum collaborate with the Eastern Band of Cherokee? Well, um, our mission statement is just very simple, that you know, uh, is to uh, promote the understanding and appreciation of history and culture of the Cherokee people uh, in eastern Tennessee, particularly the life and contributions of Sequoia. And the museum will collect, preserve, interpret, and uh, exhibit objects and data that support this mission. And so, you know, that's why we're trying to be very focused. Um, We've had in the past where uh, individuals have donated their uh, airhead collection, you know, Hmm. projectile points. And and so we've we've gone away from that because we want to focus on Sequoia's life, which is circa 1776 through... Uh, 1833, 
And so, you know, we let other museums, you know, show and um, uh, educate people about, you know, uh, you know, projectile points and felts and pottery. And so we kind of stay away from that just so that we can focus and specialize on the incredible thing that Sequoia did. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What is the most unexpected thing that you do or have gotten to be a part of with the Sequoia Birthplace Museum? <laughs> um, that it That's one of the things, um, when I got here, uh, I actually uh, started this job in July of 2000, and um, my predecessors had looked at it as a museum, and so they just kind of focused the you know, kind of on the building, you know, the inside. And um, my background, um, I'm an Eagle Scout. I love the outdoors. Um, And so to me, I kind of looked at the property that we have here. And and so over the years, uh, we've built a shoreline trail to attract people. I don't want to go to a museum about some guy creating a writing system. I mean, that's like, yeah, really <laughs> thrilling. You know, well, hey, they have a hiking trail. Let's go down there and go hiking. And so, you know, we get them here for the trail and, you know, they come in to use the bathroom and then they start learning the story and they visit the museum. Um, we have an amphitheater. Um, that was, that's one of the things that I never thought I'd be involved with an amphitheater, but we we don't do as many concerts or things that we should or could, but um, I've always wanted to try to find somebody to get on staff that could actually, you know, be uh, kind of an event coordinator for the amphitheater, so we could use, utilize it more. Uh, but we've had con- rock concerts, gospel uh, concerts, um, uh, different meetings of different uh, groups, and there again, it's bringing them here to the museum. Otherwise, it would never come, and we get them in the museum to, to learn about Sequoia. Um, built log cabins, a blacksmith shop. Um, my original projection was to be here maybe five years, and I've been here 24 years now. So, ah, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. That's really cool. It's like a good use of like a lot of space. Yeah, yeah, and mm. innovative ways to get get people in the door, whether directly or indirectly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it, you know, that, that's, I, I don't know how to put that. <laughs> but one way is, well, I don't want to use that analogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so for our last question before the ad break, uh, every semester we rotate a different theme to kind of center our show around, and this semester our theme is bridging the past and the present. So how does your work help to bridge that gap? Well, um... Sequoia, I mean, Sequoia creates this his this writing system, and mm-hmm. and it, he uses symbols that he creates, but then they change to the printing press syllabary, and um, and so, you know, one of the things that one of the programs we do here on a regular basis is we have a Cherokee language program, and we have we do intermediate or excuse me, we do beginning intermediate and advanced uh, Cherokee language classes. And so, you know, we have descendants, we have people just interested in language. Um, You know, we have enrolled members that come uh, and take those classes. And so, you know, one of the the, the, uh, sensitive or or, uh, concerning things is, or concerning is, the Cherokee language, the native speakers that, that grew up speaking Cherokee and then learned English in school are passing away. Mm. And uh, the last time I heard the number, it was down to 100 and some. Um, so, you know, within the next few years, those uh, native speakers are not going to be around with us. And so, the Cherokee Nation, the Eastern Band of the Cherokee, and the United Gadua have been really uh, active and progressive about trying to get 
more and more people speaking the language so that it doesn't drift away that yeah. you know and more and more Cherokee and other folks that are interested in language or you know whatever motivation are learning to speak Cherokee and so I think that's one of the the things I feel is important for us is to help build that the language up yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take an ad break. We'll see you in two minutes. So... And welcome back to It's All History to Me, here live on Weekland 91.1. This morning we are joined in conversation with Charlie Roadhammer, who currently serves as the curator of the Sequoia Birthplace Museum in Vonner, Tennessee. For visitors who may not be familiar, could you share a brief synopsis of the story of the Sequoia Birthplace Birthplace Museum highlights with our listeners? Um, sure. Um, um... Well, we tell the story of Sequoia, um, who was um, uh, illiterate. Of course, he, he spoke no, or he spoke Cherokee, and he could not read or write in any language. And over a twelve-year period, Sequoia developed um, the, the Sequoia syllabary, um, and with his invention of the syllabary. Uh, it enabled the Cherokee people to read and write in their own language. Um, his syllabary actually changes to a printing press uh, syllabary uh, for uh, several reasons, but um, the Cherokee continue to use uh, the printing press uh, syllabary to read and write in Cherokee. Yeah, yeah, and that story is such an impactful one too that really proves the the power of language and the importance of it and the hard work that Sequoia did to make something like that for the Cherokee Nation is super fascinating. Yeah. So definitely a great story that needs to be told. Yes, and, and that was one of the things, I mean, it just, for me, uh, when I was deciding to take this job, I actually was looking at another job um, and, you know, I, I had stacks of books um, about the other facility that I was going to go to Mm. and it was like three books on Sequoia and you know it's just to me it was I just felt like I wanted to tell Sequoia's story because of this incredible thing that he did being illiterate and over 12 years trying different types of writing systems hieroglyphics um, and he you know he couldn't remember the symbols and if he couldn't remember it he's creating it then you know, the Cherokee people would never learn it, never use it. Right. And, yeah. um, you know, so he drops that. And so there's a number of different stories, but my favorite one is uh, Sequoia was just sitting one day listening, just sitting in the woods, and he was listening to birds sing. Hmm. And as he listened to the bird's song, he heard repetitive sounds in the bird's song. Oh. And that got him to thinking, well, what if I break down the sound of the Cherokee language? So he starts listening to his family and his friends and his neighbors, and he starts breaking down these little repetitive sounds that he hears in the language. Hmm. And so he gives them symbols, and so he what he creates is the syllabary. You'll see it. Numerous people call it an alphabet. It's not an alphabet like we use. We take our, our letters and we put them together to create the syllables, and then the syllables go together to create the words. 
Sequoia didn't take that extra step and break the sounds down. He just left it at the sound. So that's mm-hmm. what makes it a syllabary opposed to being an alphabet. Ah, right. And that's such a great way of describing it, too, as it's one step removed from what, like, the English alphabet is. It's uh, the step between uh, sounds and words instead of letters, sounds, words. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. So I had the opportunity to visit the Sequoia Museum this past December, and I was really impressed by the quality of the exhibits and the power of storytelling at the museum. So I wanted to ask what the process looked like to build the Sequoia Birthplace Museum into the facility that exists today, which is super modern and really impressively done. Well, thank you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, a lot of work. Um, originally, the museum opened in 1986, and when it originally opened, it was a state-of-the-art museum for 1970. <laughs> um, it was... Uh, uh, the the exhibit the original exhibit was built by the McClung Museum at University of Tennessee up in Knoxville, and so um, it was that exhibit was I think bought from them and then installed here, and so it was built in the 1970s. <laughs> and um, you know when I got here that was some of the things I started tweaking and trying to update uh, uh, the original exhibit. And when I got here in 2000, the board had already identified the museum needed a renovation. But, um, uh, you know, the museum opened before the Eastern Band had a casino, had, you know, income coming in. Mm. And so it had been a battle. And that was one of the impressive things about this. Originally, uh, I'm trying to remember the original name, the, the, friends, the friends of Sequoia. Um, kept the doors open. Hmm. I mean, the museum never closed its doors until the pandemic. The oh, pandemic's wow. what forced us to close our doors. Mm-hmm. And um, so they managed to keep the doors open, the museum running and operating back when there was no money really available. And over time, um, through the Cherokee Preservation Foundation in Cherokee, North Carolina, um, the, the help of, uh, the Tennessee, uh, arts, um, the, um, uh, the Eastern band, uh, council, um, uh, members, um, uh, helped rec- rec- requisition or, um, um, annual support for the museum. Um, and that started shortly after I got here and that enabled us to start growing and doing more programs. And then um, it was over an eight-year process that we actually started planning charrettes and planning to do the new exhibit, and probably uh, four years to actually raise the $3 million that we needed to actually do the renovation of the building and to install the new exhibit. And so a lot of charrettes uh, discussing what the points were. and um, so that it, it was a lot of meetings. <laughs> huh, I believe that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the ultimate like planning committee for the museum, uh, who all comprised that group? Okay. Um, well, originally the, the chairman was Maxwell uh, D. Ramsey. Um, and then uh, there were a number of the board members that, uh, we're on the board, and then uh, my board is made up of uh, members of the Eastern Band of the Cherokee. Um, we we don't have anybody from the nation right now, we've, but we've had uh, Cherokee citizens from uh, the nation. We've um, uh, we got a number of folks, uh, Marie June Luska from Cherokee, a number of the elders. We had the elders actually review. Um, the storyline. Oh, wow. Uh, so we went to a lot of different people to get the perspective, you know, to get their perspective um, and input on how they wanted us to tell Sequoia's story and the, and the story of the Cherokee here in eastern Tennessee. Yeah, absolutely. And that community collaboration is such a, such a 
integral and then amazing part that you were able to accomplish to make the museum possible. Yes, ma'am. And I, I was hired because of my museum background and the experiences that I've had. Um, and so um, I'm maybe have some Cherokee somewhere back up the line. But two years ago, the Eastern Band Council uh, made me an honorary member of the Eastern Band. So. Wow. So that's been that's one of the highlights of my life was uh, when the council did that. So yeah, that's amazing. Absolutely. Uh, the museum also utilizes a variety of innovative technologies in its storytelling. How did these technologies get developed for the museum? Um. Well, it, it goes back. Um, I think before the show we were talking. Uh, Max Ramsey and I or Star Trekkers, or Trekkies. <laughs> and so uh, that was one of the things that we usually talked about <laughs> when socially. And um, But Max had a vision of the first theater being um, like you're in space and you come zooming down and you come into uh, a Cherokee winter house in the 1700s and you kind of come through the door and you see Werta, Sequoia's mother, and, you know, she's holding uh, baby Sequoia. And um, kind of the intro is that, you know, um, born on the frontier, this baby will grow up. And and you kind of would fly out of, come back flying out of the, the winter house and back into space. And kind of then you will come flying down into Washington, D.C. <laughs> and in through the Capitol doors and up to the statue of Sequoia in, in Statutory Hall. And, you know, and how did this baby from the Tennessee frontier get here? You know, and it kind of is an intro to get you interested, to get you wanting to learn more about, you know, who Sequoia was. And the original design for that was going to be over $300,000. Wow. And um, the, the designer... Uh, did things for Disney and she ended up uh, having to go to China. And so we got a new uh, designer, uh, Lynn Henley from out in California. And Lynn took all the shreds, all the meetings, all the notes. And, and I originally figured a uh, new designer, she's going to want to have new meetings and all this, but she took all the thing, all the work that we had done prior. Um, and she took all that and she came back with this, this, uh, this exhibit for a fraction of the cost uh, from the Disney lady. And, uh, and it's very, I mean, I think you saw it, Victoria. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it grabs you and pulls yeah. you in. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So the technology works really well to tell an especially engaging and cohesive story, like you're talking about, that traditional artifact displays don't really have that same power to do. Uh, do you view this as an asset to the unique collections at the museum, or how did you like balance deciding how many theaters to put in the museum and uh, how to balance the technology in more like traditional displays? It boiled down to the space. Mm. The, the space is what dictated what we could do. Right. And okay. if we had added on to the building, it would have caused us to have to have gone to uh, internal um, uh, sprinkler systems and it would have cost a lot more uh, than $3 million to do, you know, what we did. Right. And so we, the, the, what I want to kind of get out there is um, for your listeners, uh, Google uh, shadow theater. Um, you know, Lynn came into the, the first meeting after she had taken all the information. And I remember, you know, we're all sitting around in the, the, the meeting room and she starts talking about shadow theater, and I'm like, "What is that? No, huh?" <laughs> and um, Dr. Dwayne King, the second theater, he wanted it to be 3D, mm. and so for 3D, you have to have all this space and mirrors to project the image for it to be 3D. Right. And we couldn't do that, and so by going to the shadow theater, uh, and for me, you know, I, I like. I'm interested in clothing. You know, you're sitting there nitpicking. That's not the right hunting frock. Or that's, 
that, <laughs> right. that's not fashionable for another 20 years. They messed up with that. Mm-hmm. But with the shadow theater, you're focused on the message. And it seems to be, to me, it's more impactful. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the first theater and the second theater, um, I think, you know, people walk in and the first one gets you interested and the second one kind of answers, you know, well, how did he do it? What did he, you know, and, you know, he tries hieroglyphics, uh, but that just doesn't work for him. And then they kind of, in the theater, it's like he and Aoka, his daughter, are having a, a conversation and and Aoka's kind of pestering him. And he's like, oh, Aoka, Aoka. And, you know, breaking it down into the syllables. Right. And so it's an easy way of getting people to understand his syllabary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that, yeah, that second theater really pulled it all together. It does such a good job of telling the story. And shadow theater, that makes sense now that I'm, like, thinking about uh, watching it and how it all worked well. It was able Mm -hmm. to highlight the story without being, like, distracting, like you're saying, with, like, having to nitpick other details. So, yeah, that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. It's such a creative way to do that. And just a word of advice about the the technology, and it didn't quite happen. But I kept saying we need redundancies. I want backup lights. I want backup chips. I want backup. We've had uh, we had the second theater go down for about a week mm. one time, and the first theater's got a couple of glitches. So that's the one thing. I don't like about the technology. Hmm. Um, there's a museum, I won't mention any names, but they had a, 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 it was like one computer that ran all their technological stuff and it went down hmm. and they couldn't get it going. They sent it back to the, the builder. He went through it. Um, and it worked. Wow. And they, he shipped it back to them. They plugged it in and it, it worked for some years later hmm. um, with no more glitches. But, there again, that's the danger of the technology is, you know, if it goes down, your museum goes down. Right. Yeah. And Absolutely. that's a yeah, good point thinking about like the logistical side of things, too, and how how that factors in. Mm. Yeah. yeah. We're going to take an ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. OK. Good morning, and welcome back to It's All History to Me. This morning, we are continuing our discussion with Charlie Rodhammer, who currently serves as the manager and director of the Sequoia Birthplace Museum in Monroe, Tennessee. So, uh, we want to talk a little bit more about what your day-to-day experiences are like as manager and director of the museum. So, I guess starting out uh, with that question exactly, what does your day-to-day work look like? Uh, (laughs) Uh, some days I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I guess that's one of the reasons why I think I've stayed here for 24 years. Is um, In other museums, you kind of, I was curator of the National Scouting Museum when it was in Murray, Kentucky. Oh. And um, so, you know, that do- job, you know, I had an office, my collection, the exhibits, you know, that was the focus you still had a variety of things, you know, different days, you know, and here it's kind of the same way. Um, you know, uh, kind of the school tour season, we've got, uh, schools, elementary schools and junior highs, uh, and then some colleges that are coming through. Mm. Um, typically that's in like November, the fall, um, and, uh, late spring, uh, early summer. And so, you know, you're dealing with school groups and just doing tours um, and then trying to catch up on paperwork. Um, right. You know, uh, you know, some days uh, might be running a chainsaw on the trail. Huh? Um, you know, I don't get to get in the blacksmith shop and actually demonstrate as much as I would like to. But, you know, so it, that's one of the wonderful things about this job for me is, you know, one day I may be going um, 
driving an hour down to Athens, Tennessee, to do a presentation for the Daughters of the American Revolution on Sequoia, hmm. um, or John uh, uh, Sam Houston, who was Sam Houston was actually adopted by the Cherokee no. um, and learned to speak the language, and the, so Sam Houston's connected to the Cherokee, um, and I've been interested in him for a number of years now. Uh, so. You know, that, doing research, that's another thing I really love to do is, is digging, you know, digging for information, going back to the primary sources and, um, you know, finding people that, that were writing about Sequoia while he's still alive or was still alive. So um, so you never know. I mean, some days you get people coming in with artifacts and wanting to know about them. <laughs> so it's, it, there's a lot of variety. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Never a dull moment. Yeah. I'm sorry, I missed. <laughs> Never a dull moment in your your oh. line of work. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, well, there is a few dull moments. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they call it work. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> what is your biggest challenge working at the museum? Um, priorities. Uh, I mean, to me, it's. You know, that's why I have to kind of, because there's so many different things to do. And, you know, you got to figure out what is important, what has to be done, whether you want to do it or not. And sometimes I'm guilty of, well, I think I'll go do this instead. You know, is it's just getting the priorities that has to happen. Um, there was a grant last year that, that I needed to write, but the problem we were, were having special events and it took me away from sitting down and, and writing out that grant. So we missed it. Mm. And that's one of those things that I've kicked myself from last year that I, I should have just locked myself in the office and done it. And so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the balance of time. Yes. Time. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. On a different note, do you have a favorite exhibit or part of the museum or just part of uh, your job that you get to do? <laughs> um, it's like my children. You can't just pick one. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, I mean, it's, uh, the blacksmithing, you know, we have a printing press. Um, it's an, we, the Cherokees bought a Union Acorn printing press, hmm. and that's what they printed, the Cherokee Phoenix, the uh, the first tribal newspaper, um, and it was bilingual uh, in Cherokee and in English. Um, and we tried to find a Union Acorn Press, and we we found two in museums, but they wouldn't let us touch them. Hmm. Museum joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we, I ended up finding a collector, Mr. John Jacobson, up in New Jersey, who uh, collected printing presses, and he had an 1833 Otis Tufts. Acorn Printing Press. So wow. it's seven years newer than the Union Press, but it operates the exact same way. It's the same technology. Hmm. And we were able, he actually donated half of the cost of the press to us. Wow. Uh, there's a Swamp, uh, swamp Press uh, letter foundry, and he had created uh, the Cherokee syllabary type, so we have the Cherokee syllabary type. Hmm. Uh, we've been printing uh, Cherokee syllabaries. Um, for the bicentennial, Sequoia finished in 1821, and in 2021 was the bicentennial of Sequoia finishing his syllabary. So wow. we did a, a a bicentennial edition of the syllabary. Um, and so being able to, I never thought I would enjoy setting type and working a printing press, but <laughs> that's something that I found fascinating and very relaxing, actually. Yeah. Ah, and it is such a unique uh, thing to get to say you've gotten to do. Not a lot of people can say that they've operated a printing press, especially nowadays. Yeah, yeah, and that was one of the things that I found when I, I got here and we were talking to the school groups as they would come through. Kids in the fourth grade have no concept of how a book or a newspaper was printed in 1821 or 1827. You know, they... <laughs> And so, you know, every single symbol on that newspaper 
is one little piece of lead pipe that you put together. Right. And my buddy, Brian Baker, that's been teaching me the press uh, and how to do uh, printing press, um, he equates it to like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. Hmm. And I hate jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> I hate putting them together. Yeah. But I find the type, I know where it is. Right. So, and I know where it goes. So it's not that. Yeah, yeah. Hunting. And so it, I find it really relaxing to just set tight. It, it's fun. Yeah. How cool. Yeah. Um, so looking to the future, what do you hope that the Sequoia Museum looks like five, ten years from now? Um, I want to see it grow, improve. And I think through that, you know, from when I got here in 2000, um, the museum didn't even have the money to pay me mileage. Hmm. And so, you know, as the years have gone by, we've broadened the income um, where we we have memberships. The tribe, we're a line item in the tribal budget. So we get money there. Um We've gotten uh, grants from Tennessee Arts, from Tennessee Humanities, um, uh, the National uh, Humanities. So, you know, we've tried to broaden our income sources that's helped us to grow and to be able to do the Cherokee language programs, to do basket weaving uh, classes, pottery classes. And so... What I would like to see uh, is actually hiring enrolled members to do living history here mm. on a daily basis. So, you know, uh, I'd like to see us grow in that, that we get more uh, Cherokee citizens uh, from the nation or uh, enrolled members from the Eastern Band uh, to actually be here to tell Sequoia's story. And so um, there's a couple of things that we have a, a resort that actually pays rent income to the museum. Hmm. So that's helped us to grow yeah. considerably. And so as the years go by and as uh, our income increases, then we can increase um, more activities and more programs. Yeah, that makes sense. And just so amazing how much you've already been able to accomplish and impact with the museum in the last couple of years that you've been there. So definitely seems like you're headed in the right direction. Amazing, amazing well, accomplishments. Well, thank you. Of course. Yeah. Okay, so for our last segment, we want to end with some trivia questions and then two questions that we always end our hour with. All right. Okay. So our first trivia question is, how many characters are in the Cherokee syllabary that Sequoia developed? Okay. Nothing ever simple. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sequoia creates, he finds 87 sounds that he gives symbols to. Um, and then what happens is when uh, he, his symbols are very cursive and very flowing. Mm-hmm. And my friend Brian Baker that was helping me with the press, he was looking at it one day and he said the first reason why they did not use Sequoia syllabary to make all the type is you would have to make all the, the, the matrix, the moles, mm. all the different sizes. And it would, you know, you're talking thousands and thousands and um, of money and time and, and type. Right. Yeah. And, and it was so thin that as you, printed newspapers and pamphlets and books, it would flatten out the type hmm. a lot faster. Interesting. So Elias Boutenot, who's appointed by the Cherokee Nation to go buy the printing press, and he meet he meets up with Reverend Samuel Wooster, and the two of them are the ones that take Sequoia symbols and they use the symbols that we see today. Hmm. And as English readers and writers, we see D's, upside down fours, W's, uh, G's, C's, you'll see, you know, little hats instead, you know, kind of a little changed, but we recognize those symbols and you'll see Greek symbols and, um, German, uh, letters. And so to 
a Cherokee, it's a Cherokee sound. It's a Cherokee syllable. So right. you got to throw English out the window. It has nothing to do with it. <laughs> and uh, so Reverend Wooster and uh, uh, oh, um, my mind left. Uh, anyhow, uh, uh, Elias Boutenot and Reverend Samuel Wooster uh, adapt those symbols, and even the letter foundry changed some of the symbols. So um, there's a few symbols that exist nowhere else in the world, and that makes it uniquely Cherokee. And so they drop it down to 86 sounds. Uh-huh. They drop one of Sequoia sounds. And then for years, Cherokee readers and writers dropped another sound, and so it was down to 85. Huh. But so a few years ago, they added that sound back, and so it's back to 86. Oh, wow. Huh. So, so not <laughs> an easy answer, just like you said. <laughs> not an easy answer, no. From wow. 87 to 86 to 85 to 86. <laughs> huh. Quite the history behind that. Yes, ma'am. For our second trivia question, how many acres of land does the Eastern Band of Cherokee currently reside on? Well, originally the it was it's called the Koala Boundary and it's fifty seven thousand acres. But in over the last twenty years, the Cherokee, the Eastern Band, have been buying. Uh, they were able to buy the site of Gadua, which is like the mother town. Hmm. Um, that I don't know how much many acres are there, but so that's part of the the reservation now. Uh, and it's not really a reservation; it's kind of land held in trust. Hmm. Um, to get the casino, they kind of had to do this kind of reservation thing. And if you've ever been to Cherokee, North Carolina, you see this giant sign as you come on. It says, welcome to the Cherokee Reservation. Hmm. And for years, for years, I never heard anybody in Cherokee say it was a reservation. It's only been in the last 20 years that I've heard uh, some of my Cherokee friends actually refer to it as the res or reservation. Uh, because they would always call it the boundary, mm. Walla, Walla boundary or boundary. Huh. So once again, not a simple answer. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Huh. All right. So to end our conversation with you, we always like to ask our guests these last two questions. So first okay. is why is it important that we study history? That meme. <laughs> <laughs> Those that don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. And, you know, it's not going to be some guy named Adolf in a beer garden. You know, you've got to learn the history and the context is that led to, you know, um, World War II or um, the Vietnam War. You know, so you've got to learn how those came about so that you don't let that happen in the future. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And for our last question of the hour, what advice do you have for current and future students of history? Volunteer. If you're in a history program and you think you want to go into a museum, find a museum and volunteer. Um, uh, that Get practical experience. It, it looks good on your resume, and it, it gives somebody... You know, they can call, you know, they could call the Mountain Heritage Center and say, hey, well, how was that Charlie Road Armor? Was he okay guy? Or, you know, yeah, he moved the collection. He did all, you know, and I worked sometimes. I volunteered. If they had money, they would pay me. Um, sometimes it wasn't a lot, but, um, you know, it gave me a lot of practical experience learning about being a registrar or um, building exhibits. Um, and so that's probably is volunteer. Hmm. Um, and one of my mentors, when I, the first museum I worked at was the Scottish Tartans Museum in Highlands, North Carolina. And, uh, uh, Tony Chambers was one of my board members. And, you know, whether you work in a nonprofit, um, uh, a museum, you know, the thing is, is, um, create a paper trail ah. where the money comes in, where the money goes out, show where every penny goes so that. You know, when you're dealing with a board, you've got a lot of different personalities. And, you know, I've heard 
there's a lot of horror stories about boards. And I've been fortunate here at Sequoia Birthplace. I have got one. It's a big board, huge board, but um, it's a great board, great folks. And, um, you know, so that if you have a board member that has a question about, well, where did that $100 go from so-and-so donation, you can show them. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, is that paper trail. And um, oh, my mind just <laughs> uh, so I think the, the volunteering and being able to show where the money comes and where it goes are two of the most important things. And having a passion, I mean, you know, by volunteering, that's one of the other things. Uh, I had a friend that was a nursing student, and she did her practical at the very after her two years of classes. And she passed out when she drew blood. Oh, blood. No. She, she couldn't handle it. And so she continued to work in the medical field later. But, you know, you know, find out if, if you're going to like that. And that's another good thing about the volunteering is, is you know, the registrar is kind of, you know, you're sitting there documenting the artifacts. And it's fun for a while, but it gets tedious after going through a thousand artifacts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, find out if you like that. Yeah, that is all great advice. Yes. Well, thank you so much, uh, Charlie, for joining us this morning. We had a great conversation with you and are so lucky to have had the opportunity to have this discussion. Well, my pleasure. I appreciate it, Victoria. Yeah, yeah, of course. And Sophie. Yes, yes. And then, of course, we also have to extend our thanks to the History Department and Dr. Schultz for their support and the College of Liberal Arts here at Auburn University. Of course, uh, Weagle, which is our radio station. Thank you for the airtime. And thank you to all of our listeners who make our show possible by uh, being here as well. Yes, well, You've been listening thanks again. To it's All History to Me. The thank show you. It's been my pleasure. Exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Thursday at 8 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time.